So we're in the last throws here of election 2022, another midterm. And with me today is Kelly Burton, who is currently the president of the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, but has also led the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee in the past, the executive director, I believe for two cycles. Indeed. You did a back-to-back stint, which I forgot about until I was going through your bio earlier today. And I'm like, wow, she went through it twice. Even more than that, I was the political director before I was ED. Oh, right. And I came in at the back end of the 2010 cycle um, to help with what ended up being a wave against us. So I think I did seven years in that building. (laughs) Oh, wow. I went through a series of mostly bad cycles. Yeah, but they most they must have liked you because you were there for a long time. Or, you know, we're all here for our pain and suffering. I don't know. Pick your <laughs> pick your truth. So you went through 2014 and I looked it up. That was a Republican gain of 13 seats. So not a tsunami, but a good Republican year. Is is that what this year feels like? to you? Good question. Well, midterm's going to midterm, right? And that's part of what we're seeing. But I think I think we are heading into the home stretch with a lot of tied races, right? And I think that is, in general, a, a good sign for Democrats. I think it's an indication of Democrats overperforming, not just compared to historic trends of where, you know, Democrats should be in a midterm, in, in you know, a midterm with our president and with the total control of Washington, um, but also compared to, I think, where people thought we were going to be a year ago. I don't think anybody thought a year out that we would be so tied in so many places. And I think that's a, uh, you know, I think it's a good sign overall. I think compared to 2014, um, I don't think we had as many tied races as we do now. I think we knew a little more um, and, and could kind of play out a little more. Certainly the country wasn't as polarized then as it is now, but I think there's just a, it feels a little bit more like we're overperforming um, expectations and over, overperforming historic trends than I think people thought would be the case at this point. But if you're an incumbent and you're tied this late in the cycle, are you more likely to lose? It depends. It depends on who's still undecided. So if I was deep in on polling this cycle, which I am not, but if I was, I'd be looking very closely at who's undecided. You know, are do those voters trend our direction? Do they have indicators that um, you know they they kind of bias to one side or the other? And I would look at obviously enthusiasm of you know where do you see the enthusiasm, um, and where do you see the the potential movement of who is still undecided at this point? And that's how you make spending decisions as the head of a committee or pack at this point. I mean, most of these spending decisions have been made, but I'm wondering if you could give some insight into like what decisions an executive director is making in the final two weeks before a midterm, an executive director of a party committee who has, you know, oversees tens of millions of dollars of allocations to go into to TV markets, right? That's, that's mainly what you're doing. Uh, mainly, although I think at this point, committees um, and the super PACs do more than just TV. There's a lot of field. There's a lot of mail. There's a lot of GOTV. There's a lot of, you know, 
texting and, and grassroots communication. And um, certainly the portfolio has expanded um, from the committees in addition to the candidates. Um, they sort of mirror what the candidates are doing and mirror what the candidates need, not just on television anymore. But yes, to your point, the vast majority of the program spending is on TV just because it's more expensive than any other tactic. I think at this point, most TV decisions are done and right. made. Um, and, you know, because you book TV a few weeks out from when the, the voters actually see it. Um, and, you know, look, I think one dynamic of this cycle is the Republican spending. The Republican cash advantage is real. And Democrats haven't faced that in the same way in the last few cycles. I think when you saw Citizens United come through in 2010, you know, the Republicans jumped on that and the um, the spending disadvantage that we faced in 2010 was very real. Um, but by 2012 and, and 2014, uh, you know, and then certainly in presidentials and on the we kind of equaled out the outside spending and so could make up for the total spent in a campaign year to be more even. And this year you just have seen the Republican, you know, secret dark money vastly um, outraise the, the Democratic money. And I think it's driven by a handful of people. I think there's like, you know, seven to 10 people that are creating mega donors that are just mega donors, hundred million dollars. Right. Exactly. That's it's just incredible amount of money that, that one person can drop into right. a committee and fund 25 races or, or whatever. It's, in, it's insane. And our system shouldn't work like that. So it's a different conversation. But yeah. to your question about late spending and, and the decisions that they're having to make, you know, I think the, the committees are being faced with uh, choices. Um, it, you know, they're all bad choices when you're being outspent, but when you're being outspent like that, you really have to figure out where's the best use of your of your dollar this late in the cycle. So we're referring mostly to, just so our listeners realize, on the House side, it's the Congressional yeah. Leadership Fund. It's their ability to raise an enormous amount of money and spend it that Democrats are worried about, right? That they're pouring into these districts. I'm wondering from a, from a macro point here, are the outside committees, because they can raise unlimited funds, just becoming so much more important than the party committees? I mean, we I've heard this on the Senate side, covering Senate races, that Senate leadership fund is just now the de facto pack that the donors go to because they, they're spending so much. They're going to spend $200 million on six Senate races. So they're going to dwarf the NRSC. Um, is this just now the future that the outside groups are more important than the party committees? No, I don't think so because the, par the party committees work directly with candidates. And at the end of the day, elections are about choices between candidates. And so that candidate work, that candidate support is really, really important. And committee dollars can just go farther than outside money. Um, you know, they can do more. They can partner with campaigns in a way that makes their dollars go farther. Um, candidate money is the most efficient money. It's the best money in the system. And so candidate money is always the top priority. Um, and then I think the the proximity that the, that the committees have to the candidates is always, always going to be valuable. And especially this late in the cycle, you know, it's, it's, being outspent is a real thing, but there is a diminishing marginal return to every additional dollar at this point in a cycle. And so you get to the point where, you know, if you're being outspent by, you know, 2000 points of television, does it help to be outspent by 2500 points of television? You know, there's just a little right. Bit is of there a diminishing return, return to the television ads right. at some point right. because right. people are just sick of them? And frankly, you know, how many people have early voted? I think the total is like 8 million now. 
have already awesome. cast their ballots. Yes. So people are like done. They're like, hey, we don't need another two two weeks of campaigning. Right. We're re- we're ready. And, and now it's all about the ground game too, right? It's all about turnout. It's all about, you know, those final pushes. And a lot of that happens on the candidate side. And a lot of that happens, um, you know, on the committee side. And um, most outside groups don't spend in the field in the same way. Uh, and that really is where the bulk of the work happens this late in the game. So I talked to a Democratic strategist about 10 days ago who was involved in the House races and basically said to me, the new goal for, for the House strategists are to, are to keep the margins where the Republicans are, to keep the, the best outcome Democrats can have is to hold Republicans to about a plus six to 10 seat majority coming out of this and then go into 2024, you know, guns blazing and you, you can take it back. Is that the is that? A realistic mind meld among Democratic strategists. This person would not say this on the record because he said Nancy sure. Pelosi would would bury him. But will you? <laughs> well, this is where I think redistricting comes into play, which is my current job, as you know. Yes. Um, um, I, I it is really important to recognize that the House is in play this cycle because we have more fair maps and more states with fair maps than they have states with Republican gerrymandered maps. That is a fundamental truth. The New York Times just did an analysis of the House map in general Mm -hmm. and showed that it's structurally, it's the fairest House map that we've had in this country in 40 years. years, Yes. Right. The Republican structural advantage went from what, like 23 seats in 2012, following that redistricting cycle to 11 seats in 2020, which was largely because of redistricting lawsuits that happened in that window. And now to a structural advantage of only three seats, which is because of redistricting. It's because we have so many fair maps that we didn't have last time. And that matters. And that is creating this kind of fundamental fairness in the playing field and the competitive seats that you're seeing, you know, the the heart of the battleground toss-up seats and, and lean seats in the battleground is in those states with fair maps. And that really matters. And that is why the House is in play and will be in play for the decade, regardless of what happens in November. Because in the states that the Republicans gerrymandered to the extreme, right? For example, Florida, Georgia, Florida. Yeah, we're not even talking about those states. They're not in the Cook Report. They're not the competitive battleground districts, really. And if the Republicans would have had the ability to gerrymander at that level in the the states where they did that same thing in 2012, so like Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Michigan, Virginia, you know, we wouldn't be talking about those states either, right? Those states would be off the board and the Republican overall numbers would just be set. It would be structurally set and the House wouldn't be competitive. No one would be even talking about it because there wouldn't be enough seats to get to the majority for Democrats. And that is not the case. So So, tell me me about your biggest win in what what you do now, the national redistricting. I mean, you guys, you guys are fighting all over the country um in different states what where do you see is the the, the biggest win oh i got a call coming in here you can take it yeah. no i'm not gonna take it. <laughs> it's just a buddy of mine um, um so wh- where what state do you feel like wow we were going in facing headwinds this would have been really detrimental to the democrats 
a decade, you know, looking a decade down the road. Yeah. But what we turned, but we, we turned it into a much, much better map for us. Yeah. Well, um, North Carolina is a good example where the Republicans control the uh, redistricting process. The first map that they put forward was a 10-4 map, 10 Republican seats, four Democratic seats, no competitive seats, and also not reflective of a swing state like North Carolina, right? So 10-4 was where they started. That's crazy. (laughs) So (laughs) we sued them and we won. And through, you know, lots of iterations of legal legal battles, we now have a 7-6-1 map. We have a very fair 50-50 map in North Carolina. um, And that reflects the state. So North Carolina is on the table, you know, it's on the board and we have those seats in the queue to even compete with and compete for as Democrats, which would not have been the case if they would have just gotten away with their 10-4 map right out of the gate. Similarly, in Pennsylvania, where the Republican legislature tried to do, you know, a very skewed map, 12-5, I think was their initial proposal, um, and the governor vetoed that map, rightly so. It went to the courts, and the courts actually picked the map that was put forward by the plaintiffs that we supported in the case, which was a very fair, very, you know, 50-50 map with a slew of competitive races around the state that reflects the state of Pennsylvania, and that is the map that we're fighting on this cycle. Um, so it was really so courts that sided with your arguments in those right? two states. Yeah. In, in, I, in, mo- in yeah. most places, because you had you, you were up against Republican legislatures that were willing to, to draw almost anything to their advantage. And, and courts kind of came in and said, no, you got to do this over. Right. Is that yeah? because they broke the law? Right. So the courts came in and we sued them and won because they broke the law. It's it's not harder than that. If they wouldn't have broken the law, they wouldn't have done those extreme acts and they wouldn't have been held accountable by the courts. Right. Like that's what happened. So um, it's the the courts and are fair arbiters of this. Um, I think the Republicans are trying to push a narrative this cycle that the, the courts are not fair. They absolutely are fair. We have won with Republican courts, Republican yeah. justices. We've won with Trump justices. The merits just speak for themselves in redistricting. Um, and they tried to break the law and we, you know, this we sued them and the court stepped in and stopped them. And and that's fine. That's you know, um mm-hmm. hopefully they won't make that choice to break the law in the future, but here we are. So um, so that's why the courts had to get engaged. You know, from from NDRC's perspective, we've had a comprehensive plan um, where we have been getting people involved in the process. We've been educating people. We've been providing tools. You know, we do everything even prior to the lawsuits to try to get to fair maps. Um, but you know, if they're going to break the law, then we're going to hold them accountable. So, so now that the maps are set for another decade, what does um, NDRC do? like going forward i mean do you guys just chill until 2030 or like what what's what do you do in the interim um wouldn't that be nice to chill until 2030 if you find anyone who's chill until 2030 hit me back (laughs) i don't know them um no i will i think first of all the maps aren't all the way set there are still a lot of lawsuits we have 11 active lawsuits in the queue because in a lot of those states where the republicans gerrymandered the maps they just they kind of ran out the clock um with the courts so we have we have several maps where we've won on the merits the courts have been like yo, you're right, this map is illegal and gerrymandered, but we don't have enough time to fix it before the election, so we're um, going to fix it next cycle. So the maps so could change. So you're going to have some maps going to change in 2024. There's going to be different congressional 100%. districts. 
Yes. Of how many? Do we know how been. many? Well, we know that North Carolina has to be redrawn um, because since a court drew that map, it's only good for one cycle. That's just how the statute works in North Carolina. So North Carolina will redraw for sure. Um, and Ohio might redraw as well, um, given how their court proceedings have played out. But then we also have active litigation against the Alabama map, the Louisiana map, the Georgia map, um, the Florida map, the Texas map, that, which are all states with extreme Republican gerrymandering. So we're very much on offense in the litigation space um, because we're still fighting against those Republican maps that were gerrymandered. And any lawsuits they brought against Democratic maps or commission maps, you know, we've won. Um, and so it's all offense uh, against Republican gerrymandered maps in litigation for next cycle. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that who knows how they, they play out, but um, in any any court that any any lawsuit that we win will result in a map that will be better um, for Democrats because it will be eliminating the Republican gerrymandering. This is why the House is so chaotic. Yeah. Because it not only well, goes so through this every 10 years. Interesting. Chaotic. Interesting. Chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> it's so hard. I mean, for as a reporter. So hard. It's so hard to cover. Yeah. Um, just even without the redrawing of the maps. I mean, House districts pop up. I remember tw 2010 was my first national cycle. And I remember incumbents started losing and nobody saw it coming. I mean, people were losing sometimes just how and how rarely is that happen in a Senate race Does something like sneak up on a senator or a governor. You kind of smell it coming or indications. Yeah. The House is a little wild because some there's just so many seats. And sometimes if it's a wave, it catches someone off guard. Someone that won by 15 points, you know, two years ago gets caught in the undertow. Yeah. And I just, I wonder, given how many cycles you've been through now, I mean, looking at this map, it, it, it seems like, I mean, you, you mentioned this previously, but we're dealing with so many 50-50 races, but we know basically the races, right? There's about 30 yeah. or so. I was looking at the map today that, that most you know, prognosticators are putting in that toss up and they could break either way. Now, Republicans yeah. only need like six to win the majority yeah. as long as they hold all their own. But I mean, is that where you see it? I mean, like is the battleground about 30 seats that are going to determine the power of the yeah. House? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, it'll it'll. Um it'll vary from that cycle to cycle, depending on the dynamics of the cycle. Right. I mean, um, this cycle, I mean, like this cycle. Yeah. It, yeah. I'd say it's about 30, maybe 35. Um, it is important to note that the decrease in the overall number of competitive seats is also largely due to Republican gerrymandering. It was a choice that they made in the maps and worth noting it's a it was a different choice than what democrats made in the states where they control maps and in like states where commissions draw the map anyone besides the republicans um chose to you know sort of spread the voters out across districts try to make them fair and and make more competitive seats whereas the republicans really tried and with great intention to take competitive seats off the board but That's don't democrats why... gerrymander too in like maryland and well, new york and their maps courts, got thrown out, right? Like Democrats got their maps courts, thrown out. But courts stepped in in both of those states and, you know, also held them accountable. And now those maps are, you know, seemingly more fair than the original map. But in Oregon, for example, you have, you know, Democrats drew that map and there are two seats in Oregon that of six that are very competitive this cycle, right? That was mm -hmm. not, not, um, 
not an not an accident, but also very different than what you see again in Texas and Georgia and Florida, um, where they very actively tried to take competitive seats off the table. Right. Similarly, in Nevada, right? Democrats drew the maps in Nevada, um, and now you have you know three competitive seats that are on the the battlefield for this cycle, and that's a good thing. Like we're not scared of the voters, you know. So it is very different how the Democrats drew maps than how the Republicans drew maps, and um, you know you look at Texas, where Texas you know, 95% of the growth in Texas came from people of color. And what the Republicans did was increase the number of white majority districts in, in their map. And they took the competitive seats totally off the board for the decade. That was their intention. So, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. Um, but all of that to say, when you're looking at the House map, it, it really is that kind of underlying structural fairness. That's what's keeping it competitive now. And I think we'll keep it competitive for the decade. So inside elections, Heading into the final week, has their prognostication at a Republican gain of anywhere between eight and twenty-five seats? That's a it's a long margin of error for them. What's the Kelly Burton forecast? I'm not in the business of forecasting anymore. <laughs> I had that job. Um, <laughs> and but I mean, what I if you put put your cap time, on? Put your 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 D triple C executive director cap on. What does this feel like to you, given your experience? Because you went through 2012 and 2014 and 2016. I mean, this is a weird, funky cycle, or maybe it's not. There's some that's saying it's returning to the normal Republican. I mean, a month ago, Democrats were much chippier and happier. Now it feels like, oh, this may just be the typical Republican gain in a midterm, which happens religiously with a couple exceptions in history. I think the big question remaining for the next two weeks is, does this Republican spending advantage allow them to um, put districts in play and to expand their battlefield of competitive seats or not competitive seats, but seats that they can put in play with additional resources. Bluer seats that, that they can put into play. Which they are trying to do right now. That is their play. They have enough money to both double down and spend unlimited in the, you know, call it 20 seats that, you know, at the heart of the battlefield that they have to win. They know they have to win. They've been gunning for those seats the entire cycle. You just know what those are. The D-Trip knows what those are. That's like the heart of, of those 30 seats that you mentioned. Because of their spending advantage, they're now trying to put additional seats in play, right? They're trying to expand their map. And the question is, I think for those of us watching this from the outside for the next two weeks, does that work? Does mm -hmm. that put additional seats in play? Or, you know, is there just enough um, Democratic DNA, as we say, in those districts to, to protect against that spending? And this is where I think um, Democrats are running a, a very good strategy because it is all about the ground game. And I think Democrats do better on the ground game than Republicans. And Democrats have been investing in the ground game for a long time, like earlier than we ever did. They just, they know how to run turnout. They know how to really do the ground. And that's the most important thing right now. That's why you're seeing high turnout on both sides. Um, I think it's why the early vote numbers are very encouraging for Democrats in a lot of states and districts. So, you know, I think the, that's the, so I'm not, I'm not going to do a projection. You're not I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm not, I that's don't have right. it. It's like, um, okay. I, I hung what? up that hat, but I think that's the thing to watch for is, you know, do they, okay use their spending advantage to push them out further. Then to, to wrap up, what about if I'm looking at the map on election night and 
I want a bellwether race. I'm looking at for a bellwether race that's coming in early because we know California is going to take a week to count. Like I, yeah. so some of those west western districts, I you know, right. it'll be a while. Yeah. But I'm looking at New Jersey, Pennsylvania, yep. Virginia. You know, maybe it's North Carolina. Is there a seat that you would be looking at being okay if she or he is if this incumbent is doing well? I feel good. Yeah. If if he or she is not. Uh oh, wave. Yeah, good question. Um, I think oh, well, if you go, you know, from east to west, I think um, North Carolina thirteen is an is a good, interesting seat to look at. Um, I think that the the Philly suburbs, in general, again, given how competitive the Pennsylvania map is, that it is a fair map. I think you're so you have some good competitive seats in the Philly suburbs. Um, I think I do think the New York map is interesting. Um, you know, that kind of. Hudson Valley um, area of then sort of upstate New York mm -hmm. map. Um, I think there's been some interesting, you know, attention on Indiana one Republicans yeah. have been trying to put that race in play. I think that'll show you if they're having a really good night. Um, I think people keep like pointing me to Spanberg, Nevada, Virginia. Yeah. I think Spanberger is a good example. Just that she's a, everybody says she's a good candidate, a good incumbent, you know, great profile in her district. It's gotten a little bit more democratic, I believe, because there are more yes, Hispanic yep. voters in that district. But it is it's been it's been ranked a toss up. And I saw a poll, the you know, the polling looks pretty close. I mean, Republicans were saying, you know, we're on our heels. We can get her this time. So people have been pitching me on Spanberger. If she's able to win early in the night, it's a good sign for for other democrats that are in those 50 50 districts but if she loses uh-oh uh -oh. yeah i think that's a good one and i'd i'd twin spanberger and luria so i'd look at both of those in right. virginia and luria is you know, a little bit of a, a tougher district though, tougher right? district exactly yeah. right but similar dynamic where she's a very strong incumbent she's run a good race yeah um you know she she has a, a republican opponent who's beatable it is a harder district though so i think if you'd look at those two together um, you know, if, if Spamberger wins and Luria loses, maybe it's a little bit of a wash, not a wave, right? If they both win, you know, maybe it's netting Democrats um, or Democrats are overperforming. If they both lose, maybe that's an indication of, um, of you know, a good night for Republicans. I think that you could take both of those together on, on kind of a spectrum of where things are, where the districts are in Virginia. Uh, and that could give you an indication. Okay. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Any any other predi predictions? If you don't want to make house predictions, do you have any intel on any other races or any um, other I, nuggets you want to share? Well, I predict the house will be in play for the decade. How about that? Okay. I so predict it, that me it means no that no one's going to have a huge majority. Republicans are going to win 50 seats. They're not. Whatever happens, they will not be in an insurmountable position for Democrats to take the house back right away in 24. And neither will... Democrats be in an instrumental right. position to hold it no matter what, right? You mean right. it could flip every cycle? Yes. Um, wow. Well, it, it will be competitive. Every competitive. Cycle. Sure. It has the potential to 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 reflect where the voters are, which is kind of what you want, right? Like you want the house map to be an indication of where voters truly are in the country. And I think just as we wrap up here and, and for your listeners who are, um, you know, just uh, in, in good students of this political yeah. work, um, 
an indication of a fair map is whether it does shift with the voters. So that's one of the indications, for example, that the California map is a fair map, is that Democrats picked up a bunch of seats in 2018, but then lost seats in 2020, which was a reflection of the electorate. You know, and I think that's the same thing we'll see here in California, where you're going to see California reflect what is a fair map. And that's what you want for the country, right? You want the country to be where the voters get to determine the outcome of the elections. And so if that's what we see, if we see, you know, the, the overall map and the overall house is a reflection truly structurally of where the voters are, that's good for democracy. And I think we'll be closer to that this decade, certainly than we were last decade. Kelly Burton with a National Democratic redistricting committee there it is formerly of the DCCC, but she says she's hung that hat up they they can't (laughs) lure her back in still fighting those republicans on the gerrymandering and but and still will be so she can't netflix and chill you're going to be going into 2023 doing it more of those lawsuits that still haven't been resolved we got we got a lot to do plus there's things we can fix and improve and do better so there's a lot of there's a lot of work in the queue but Awesome. Thank you for having me. It's great to see you. Thanks for coming on Too Close All to right. Call, Kelly. Yes, no problem. Good to see you. You too. Hang in there the next couple of weeks. You too. Take All care. Right. See ya. You too. Bye.